All right. Hey, this is uh, Zane Horowitz and everyone here at the Oregon Journal Club for August 25th, 2022. And today's Journal Club is, uh, we titled it For the Birds. Um, this is a uh, journal club of a couple of different things. Things where sometimes the bird poisons you and sometimes where we poison the birds in return. Um, it was sparked by a recent paper on avian toxins, but it made me think back to when I had written um, a couple of different things for different formats in rhabdomyolysis, and sort of the intro paper I have here is the patient with rhabdomyolysis, have you considered quail poisoning? And this paper from the Canadian uh, Medical Association Journal presents three case reports of one is a 62-year-old woman, seven hours eating a meal of fresh roasted quail, presented with uh, muscle aches and pains and dark urine, ended up having a CK of 5,500, uh, increased up, to, uh, doubled up to 11,000 the next day. She got some fluids, got better. Um, her transaminases were up to 200 and 400, um, which goes along with rhabdo. And uh, by four days later, she was feeling better. Uh, she also had myoglobin detected in her urine. Um, second is a 19-year-old man who had pleuritic chest pain and muscle aches uh, for 24 hours. It started three hours after eating quail. Uh, but then he went ahead and visited the gym and did an exercise program, so it was maybe a confounding issue there. Um, he also came in with dark urine. It was positive for myoglobin. His initial CK was 1520, um, and his myoglobin was 580 and he got better after hydration. And the last person was a 40-year-old male who had pain in his shoulders and his legs with some nausea for three days. Um, he ate quail for dinner, the, and the symptoms began about eight hours before that. And he also engaged in, it says, intensive muscular activity the next morning. It doesn't really say he went to the gym, but something along those lines. His CK was 1,800, and his myoglobin was 600, and he got hydrated and better. So all in all, CKs in the you know, few hundreds to few th up to 1,000, the top one being 11,000, all consistent with rhabdo. So why does this occur? We know rhabdo is breaking down uh, the muscles. Several things get released, creatinine kinase, potassium, myoglobin. And myoglobin is the thing that turns your urine dark brown, gives a positive urine dipstick for protein, sometimes for blood as well. They talk about some of the more exotic things that might cause this, like some of our favorite tox uh, trivia points, like Hoff disease, which is a eating uh, buffalo fish, wild mushrooms, which is the man on horseback, wild mushroom, and also this entity eating quail, uh, which they call cartonarism. And it's mostly quail in the Mediterranean, although this is a case report from Greece, and it's the European common quail that seems to migrate in the autumn that causes the problem. And they often cite back, as a lot of these papers do, way back to Exodus and the Old Testament of the Bible, that something back there made them think that maybe it was rhabdo. Obviously, they weren't getting CPKs uh, in the desert in you know the BC era. There's not much to do for this except to recognize it, that it probably goes way underreported, that um, 
it's basically being a problem with being at the top of the food chain, as many things are, like red tide, um, is the quail themselves likely eat hemlock seeds, so contium macula, maculatum, and the hemlock probably causes, instead of the florid hemlock poisoning with complete motor weakness, just causes muscle pain and aches in the people who are afflicted by this, and they develop uh, rhabdo, which is generally self-limiting with supportive care alone. So there you have it, uh, a new word, cortornism, a rare cause of rhabdo due to eating quail. So for our primary um, presentation is the newest paper from the folks at Harvard. It talks about uh, several types of avian toxins. I have our senior fellow Ruby to tell us about that. Hi everyone. So I will spare you all with mispronunciation of all the genus and species of this and just review the, the article on avian toxins, which is super fascinating. So it's a review article of poisonous and toxic birds, and they go over specific treatments uh, besides supportive care and really uh, go into the theories on how these birds are able to acquire the toxin and the ability to prevent self-intoxication. So first off, they talk about the Tui and Ifrida quality birds, which they're colorful birds, and there are images in um, in this article. If someone's able to pull it up, we'll share it with with everyone. There's really pretty birds, and these birds specifically they're endemic to New Guinea. The initial analysis when they were trying to find the toxin, they had identified a toxic alkaloid, a the trichotoxin, uh, but subsequently studies show that this is instead of the whole uh, trichotoxin, it's the, the big trichotoxin, uh, which this is concentrated really in the breast and the belly feathers of the bird. Interestingly, the toxin can be transferred from the feathers onto the nest and onto the eggs to deter predators. So a little bit about the, the toxin, the vitricotoxin. It's a potent neurotoxic steroid alkaloid, and it has neuro and cardiotoxic properties. It's originally found in the, the poison dart frogs, and they target voltage-gated sodium channels and really your nerves and muscles, and it stabilizes the open form of the channel. So it would normally bind to the receptor, and there's persistent activation and persistent depolarization of the cells. Uh, I believe the very last page should be the photo number one. Just weird. But. Um, so, so for this specifically, unfortunately, there's no antidote for it. Uh, theoretically, it was brought up that you could treat it with tetrodotoxin, and whatever, it's an antagonistic effects on sodium channels, but that's just wild and crazy. Uh, but for its toxicity in rodents at the LD50, uh, rodents have muscle contractions, convulsions, salivation, dyspnea, and death. The birds tend to carry a lower level of, of toxin compared to the, the frogs itself, and, and with this exposure, um, someone can develop numbness, burning, nausea, or a bitter taste with it. 
And then the toxin from the feathers can also aerosolize and upon inhalation can cause sneezing, numbness, and burning of the, the mucous membranes. And this is thought that the birds acquired the toxin from eating and feeding mildred beetles. Uh, and, and another theory is that both the bird and the beetles uh, get their to toxins through eating uh, a similar plant, if you will. So the next bird that they talk about that Zane has gone over already is the common quail. So migratory birds. Really, we see this more in the European subspecies and during the autumn season. So by constant consumption, people can develop the cotrinosome, which is really the myopathy and rhabdo uh, that Zane had talked about. So they, they go to treatments besides fluid resuscitation, they talk about urine alkalinization, and then consider a role of hemodialysis for severe renal failure, and then plasma paresis for life-threatening cases of rhabdo. And this toxic hemlock, thought to be from eating this, uh, the seeds of uh, the poison hemlock. There was another theory that they briefly mentioned, an alternative theory, in which why certain patients are symptomatic and certain aren't, which would be a hereditary enzyme deficiency in the affected individual. So then the next uh, next bird that they talk about is the spur or spur-winged goose which these birds are endemic to the wetlands of the sub-Saharan Africa, and they acquire their toxin by eating blister beetles. Really, it's terpenes and cantharidium, and uh, demethylcantharidium, which uh, cantharidium, and it binds to your phospho, phosphatase 2A, and inhibits the serin uh, specific protein phos phosphatases, so it's important for neural transmission, muscle contraction, glycogen synthesis, and a, like an array of different mechanisms. It can be absorbed directly through the skin or mucous membranes, and people can have common skin findings like a dermatitis with blister formation. Specifically, the serum proteases uh, also affect and disrupt the desmosomal plaque, in which this can cause acanthalysis intradermal blistering and non-specific lysis of the skin. Ow. <laughs> and people subsequently can get profound dehydration from fluid loss and it's a pro-inflammatory state and it also affects your renal cortical duct, so multiple mechanisms for fluid loss. Uh, patients can have abdominal pain, hematuria, cool and model skin, uh, and it's considered an effective patient. So for this one, it's more so supportive care, and but you can get activated charcoal for recent ingestions. Next, a little bit closer to home, uh, North American Ruffed Rose, which is a non-migratory bird that is found in the Appalachian Mountains. So they have creatotoxins by consuming mountain laurel, uh, and this toxicity is really interesting. It's seen in the late winter, early spring, and it's thought because of the snow that covers the land, these birds are forced to uh, feed off of like trees and tall or shrubs, if you will. So there's a diterpene that binds to a group two receptor site on your uh, sodium channels, and then this prevents the activation of the channels. And it's also neurotoxic and cardiotoxic as well. Patients can get dizziness, weakness, diaphoresis, hypersalivation, nausea, vomiting, paresthesias, and then life-threatening toxicity is with arrhythmias um, within the sodium channel and 
supportive management for, for, for these patients. And then just a couple more, <laughs> bronze wings, a medium-sized pigeon that's native to Australia. They acquire monofloral acetate from consuming flowering plants. So monofloral acetate, that's the, uh, the main component in uh, rodenticide, an SMFA or compound 1080, also has neural and cardiotoxicity, can be observed in the GI tract or as well as the mucous membrane, and it affects your cellular respiration. Um, either in the citric acid or in the Krebs cycle. So, floral acetate will combine with acetyl-CoA A and that gets metabolized into floral citrate. Now, floral citrate can't enter the citric acid cycle. It then gets further converted into 4-hydroxy transaconitate, which inhibits aconitase uh, and therefore inhibits citrate and succinate metabolism. With a high citrate, it can also inhibit phosphorylcholinase and then also bind to calcium, uh, causing hypocalcemia. So as for toxicity, you can see seizures, excessive salivation, vomiting, defecation, and tenesmus. Uh, and treatment-wise would be acetamide or semi-glycarb. The last one, hoopos, um, the European hoops are found in Africa, Asia, and Europe, and it's a symbiotic bacteria uh, that they have in their ural, ural glial glands that produce dimethyl sulfide. There's really no hematoxicity if it's consumed, but more so researchers who work with these birds are just miserable when they're exposed to noxious fumes for hours, handling the birds. So. Uh, so that's a summary of all the birds. The, the last part is really looking into how are these animals able to uh, acquire these toxins without really becoming toxic. So in dark frogs, it's been found that they have a single amino acid substitution that changes the frog's sodium channel and therefore uh, resistant to it. And then similarly, there's a type of snakes, natricine. Uh, they also have a mutation in their sodium channel as well that allows for resistance against tetrodotoxin uh, when, they're, when they consume the foods. So really, evolution is kind of cool. Predator uh, and prey have both adapted to this. And then there are other explanations in which herbivores are able to modify the alkaloids in the gut. So therefore, it converts it into a non-toxic form and then they can convert it again into a toxic form when they want to shoot lasers out of their uh, herbivore self. And then the chrysalid beetle can also move the toxins into a specific exocrine gland that's further away from all the other important tissues. So overall, really cool, birds rock. <laughs> yeah, thanks, that, that was great. These, these are all obscure toxins, each one of them perhaps a trivia factoid to be asked in rounds or, or, or somewhere else. Uh, each one is fascinating. The patui with the tetrodotoxin-like bactrotoxin, which so far there's been no cases in man where they've needed to be intubated and ventilated, similar to like puffer poisoning. And the other is the effects of eating things like goranotoxin, which we've talked about with mad honey 
and uh, monofluoroacetate, the sort of potent, now banned pesticide, which disrupts the Krebs cycle and causes acidosis and seizures. I, I hadn't seen any evidence, nice pictures in, the, in this article, but no evidence that any of these ever get up the food chain high enough where man eats them, except maybe a couple of random quail cases with mild rhabdo. So thanks, that's, that's how the bird poisons us. What happens when the other way comes around? So for the first uh, article in that group, I'm gonna turn it over to Joe talking about, he's a dog lover and we gave this article to him unfortunately, <laughs> about you know what happens when we're trying to poison the birds but we miss the species. Yeah, this was kind of a sad article. I'm a, I don't like anything where dogs you know, don't do well. But uh, this is a paper called A Review of 29 Incidents Involving 4-Aminopyridine, a non-targeted species, in non-targeted species, reported to ASPCA, Animal Poison, uh, Animal Poison Control Centers. So just a little background. Uh, 4-Aminopyridine is a potassium anion channel blocker that increases the release of acetylcholine uh, at the neuromuscular junction and in the uh, central nervous system. Uh, it can be used therapeutically in humans to enhance, uh, for enhancement of cholinergic activity in patients with uh, illnesses such as uh, MS. Some of the clinical signs of toxicity include salivation, tremors, hyperexcitability, muscle incoordination, but you can also get cardiac arrest and respiratory arrest, eventually leading to death. It's uh, rapidly and completely absorbed orally, but pretty poorly absorbed dermally. And clinical science generally starts to occur 10 to 15 minutes after an oral exposure, with death occurring 15 minutes to four hour later, based on the LD50 of some previous studies that were done. So in animals, it's usually used to control the red wing population, the populations of red winged, yellow headed, rusty, brewers, blackbirds, grackles, cowbirds, pigeons, and starlings. Basically, all these birds that you find on farms that eat grain. Uh, so yeah, they're used in areas like feedlots uh, and uh, farms to basically poison these birds that will eat most of the grain or cause damage. The, treat, the poison is available in treated corn, treated corn pieces or mixed grains uh, where it's mixed at 0.5 or 1% concentrations. And this brand is called Avatrol. And again, in humans, it can be also be used therapeutically to treat neuromuscular dysfunctions associated with things like muscular sclerosis by enhancing the transmission of the synapses. It's also been used in things like botulism, Lambert-Eaton syndrome, myasthenia gravis, but uh, it's mainly used for multiple sclerosis. So this paper, uh, it was basically a retrospective uh, study uh, of cases uh, called into the ASPCA Animal Poison Control Center database from the year 2002 to 2011. They found 29 exposures of non-targeted species involving 4-AP bird bait. The inclusion criteria is basically that if it was uh, involved 4-AP bird bait and it was only one agent causing the uh, exposure. And what they found was a total of 29 exposures. The most common non-target species, unfortunately, was canines at 25, or at 25 out of the 29, which was 86%. Uh, 
The weights of these canines range from 1.8 to 38.6 kilograms with an average of 19.6. And the ages range from just a puppy at 0.3 years old to 13 years old. Uh, but the average uh, age was three years old. Felines accounted for the second most common uh, with three and at 10%. And the most common exposure area was in Colorado. Uh, second was Nevada, then Arizona and Pennsylvania. So 14 of these were assessed by the APCC staff as toxicosis or suspected toxicosis. So the clinical signs and the whole situation was fairly quickly recognized as being an AP4 poisoning. And all of these involved canines. Uh, the most common clinical sign was tremor at 35%. Then you had hypersalivation, which also at 35%. Uh, seizures were the second most common uh, at 29, tachycardia, and then ataxia. Onset of symptoms was known in 13 of the 14 of these cases and ranged from as quickly as five minutes to five hours after ingestion, but the average time of onset was 89 minutes. Uh, outcomes were known in six of the 14 uh, cases. One death was reported after four hours of exposure, and five patients made full recoveries with provisional of supportive uh, care. Uh, the supportive care included anti uh, uh, sorry, activated charcoal, anticonvulsants, muscle relaxants like diazepam and methylcarbonyl, and then just supportive care like IV fluids. Uh, in these patients, the clinical signs lasted quite a bit, so from 15 to uh, 84 hours after exposure, with the average being uh, 37 minutes. So uh, one of the things that this paper notes is that in their study, there was a longer time to onset of these patients eating the, uh, that patients that were called into the Animal Poison Control Center than the previous studies that look at uh, LD50s. So they think that this is due to animals, uh, these canines eating smaller doses, or the doses just being less than the LD50 that they ate. So for example, a 21 kilogram dog would need to ingest 50 grams of the treated corn, corn to reach an LD50, which is quite a lot when most of these animals probably just have like a small amount. So this is just something to be on like uh, watch for when you have, if you have any animals like me, if you see, especially if you live on a farm and you see a dog uh, with any of these symptoms, things on your differential list should be, you know, CNS stimulants like caffeine, antidepressants like TCAs, SSRIs, you know, then you always have amphetamines or similar agents such as methamphetamines, methylphenidates, and also decongestions like pseudoephrine. And then other pesticides such as strychnine, zinc phosphide, organophosphates, carbonates, are uh, some of the mycotoxins uh, such as penetrin A is what they mentioned. And uh, that was in my paper. So uh, all around, I thought it was kind of an interesting study. I wasn't super familiar with A uh, or four aminopyridine. And I have a dog, which I very much love a lot. And I uh, will have to keep uh, her safe from uh, any corn I find on, on the ground. Right. Yeah, that's the, maybe the take-home message is if there's stuff laying on the ground, don't assume it's yeah. just like somebody who was eating it dropped it. It could have been one of these horrible toxins. So Avatrol has been around for decades and decades. It's this concentrated for, you know, purity to kill, well, these non, you know, these predator birds that eat up crops. So um, it's out there. So that's the animal side of the equation. 
Let's move over. Humans sometimes get into this. It is also very rare, but formulopyridine is sort of an orphan drug in and of itself. So tell us at least about a couple of different cases. We'll start with Sammy. Tell us about one case and a bit of a literature review from the folks in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So um, like uh, Joey and Zane kind of touched on, uh, 4AP has been around for quite a while, uh, originally developed in the 60s as what's called an avicide, but according to the manufacturers, only about 1% of the, the birds are actually dying, uh, and it's more to uh, kind of just scare them away. But if you, know, if you, if you look up uh, PETA and other similar uh, <laughs> companies' uh, take on that, they'll say, no, it's killing all the birds. But uh, so developed uh, uh, to get uh, birds away from crops and stuff like that. So uh, a little bit about, uh, and so I just wanted to show a quick video of, of a bird supposedly affected by it. Um, the thought is that it kind of makes the birds have these uh, involuntary diaphragmatic contractions and cause them to make a distress call and then kind of scares other birds that hear it and then makes that bird scared. Uh, so, I'm sorry, you won't be able to see it on, uh, uh, on Zoom, but here's just a bird um, for you guys. <laughs> Having little kind of choreoathetotic uh, movements, uh, just kind of like twitching along. Um, and similar to what some of the, the human exposures uh, are described as, uh, so a little bit about the mechanism of the 4AP. Uh, like we talked about, it selectively blocks uh, voltage-gated potassium channels, uh, ultimately prolonging action potential, increasing calcium influx, and uh, therefore increasing uh, acetylcholine release uh, at the synapse. Um, so you get kind of expected symptoms of increased uh, acetylcholine uh, such as, as, as a, uh, uh, like extrapyramidal symptoms and then uh, other things such as uh, kind of seem uh, cholinergic in nature like severe diaphoresis, altered mental status, uh, seizure activity. So um, with that mechanism has a lot of interesting uh, medication uh, potential in uses. Uh, in fact, it was approved in, approved in 2010 uh, to improve ambulation in patients with MS. So really there's implications with any of those uh, demyelinating diseases uh, or any disease that can affect uh, really the, the neuromuscular junction because uh, this seems to improve uh, action potential conduction and uh, neurotransmitter release uh, and we'll actually talk about one kind of interesting uh, case in a second um, so let's see here let me mute my computer uh, so yeah we talked a little bit about the dosing range uh, in humans it seems like doses greater than 25 milligrams you started having effects like seizures um, as far as some of its uh, uh, kinetics uh, seems to have pretty negligible protein binding, uh, but a pretty large 
uh, volume of distribution, and then a half-life of about three to four hours. So uh, this paper talks about a, a main case, uh, which was a 37-year-old male with a history of uh, multiple sclerosis and depression. Uh, he, he was generally watched by his brother, who left him alone for about an hour, and then came back, found his brother confused and naked on the ground, uh, agitated, uh, with pills in his mouth, uh, and it seemed to be his four AP pills. Uh, so the patient was agitated, delirious, had slurred speech, uh, profuse diaphoresis, a profusely diaphoretic, tremulous, um, uh, and was taken to the ED. There he ultimately had uh, normal electrolytes, negative tox screen, normal CK, normal CVC, EKG showed some sinus tachycardia, but otherwise no interval abnormalities. He had a normal CT, uh, was initially given 10 of uh, lorazepam and some fluids for his uh, agitation and tachycardia. Uh, so he ultimately got uh, 110 milligrams of diazepam and 50 IV uh, uh, diphenhydramine, and then actually needed to be intubated due to continued uh, delirium and agitation. Was admitted to the ICU uh, where he got more uh, benzos. Um, he ended up getting 20 of more diazepam and then sedated on propofol. Uh, and then with just supportive care uh, over the next two days improved, was extubated. And then his delirium kind of continued throughout his hospital course, and he uh, ultimately returned to baseline by day seven and was discharged. Um, so they did check for AP levels in this patient, and about six hours after the ingestion, his level was like 140 uh, nanograms per milli milliliter. And then after uh, about six hours, uh, sorry, after 24 hours, the level was six. So. Uh, kind of consistent with that half-life. So uh, the article then does a, a review of several instances of 4AP uh, toxicity in humans. Um, I'll just give you a brief uh, couple liners about each one, and you, you might see a trend about some of their symptoms. So uh, in the 70s, like 78, there was a manufacturing uh, plant and three employees we're looking for, or we're thinking they were taking uh, Spanish fly, which is a new drug I learned about, uh, which apparently was used as like a aphrodisiac, uh, but I couldn't find great information on the mechanisms. Uh, but instead, they were they took four AP. Uh, they got profusely diaphoretic, uh, agitated, had convulsion-like movements, tachycardic, uh, and then one of them had three tonic-clonic seizures. Uh, and was intubated and received a lot of benzos and ultimately returned to normal by day five and discharged. The second of the three had severe diaphoresis, altered mental status, delirium, combativeness, was not intubated, but got a lot of benzos. Third patient uh, actually induced his own vomiting within 10 minutes of taking the pills and didn't get any symptoms. So I guess that's a win for like Ipecac uh, or vomiting induction. So uh, another uh, case report was uh, a year later. So this one was kind of interesting. And there was an outbreak of botulism type E in Alaska. Uh, so they treated it with 4-AP. 
because like we talked about, there's this potential for increasing uh, neuromuscular junction uh, acetylcholine concentrations. So the thought is maybe it could help. Um, it didn't really say if it helped uh, much, but uh, they did get uh, toxic for, from the 4-AP and got delirious, uh, developed seizures, and one of the patients uh, passed away from ultimately like respiratory uh, failure. Um, and then those patients required high amounts of uh, benzos as well. Um, so in the 90s, there's another one uh, where a group of patients uh, intentionally took a, an overdose. Uh, they had seizure activities, uh, activity and ultimately intubated, need, required a lot of benzos. Um, in the 90s, uh, a, a patient uh, with MS was expecting to, to do a lot of movement one particular day, took some extra of her medication of the 4-AP, uh, and uh, ultimately got toxic from that, got profusely diaphoretic, tremulous, delirious, uh, and ended up needing a lot of benzos. Uh, so there was a couple other cases. I mean, there's, there's several other with those symptoms. <laughs> uh, there's a couple cases that uh, highlight some of the cardiotoxicity that can happen as well. Um, so one patient uh, in their 30s um, uh, got, uh, thought, thought he was taking, or sorry, a 22-year-old thought he was taking like some sort of muscle building supplement, but it was actually 4-AP, uh, developed uh, cardiac uh, tachydysrhythmias, uh, right bundle branch block, he ended up having a concentration in the 300s uh, for that case. But he uh, seems like he didn't have severe neuro symptoms, so that was kind of uh, odd. Um, so uh, there's a couple other instances where there was tacky, uh, there was cardiotoxic effects. Uh, so one person effectively developed uh, uh, heart failure with a bradykinesis uh, and an EF of 24%. Um, and then ultimately, this resolved uh, with supportive care. Uh, so, um, yeah, so overall uh, signs and symptoms of 4AP uh, toxicity uh, are like neuroexcitatory issues such as seizures, extrapyramidal movements, uh, bradykinesia, choreathetosis, uh, uh, a few cases of the uh, opisthotonos, <laughs> uh, and then uh, yeah, delirium, a large delirium component and agitation, um, and then secondarily, cardiac seems to be less frequent, but uh, definitely occurs. Um, and the sim the main cardiac symptoms discussed in all these cases were things like hypertension, SVT, uh, different SVTs, AFib, uh, and then like I talked about, an instance of uh, hypokinesia, bradykinesia. Um, so, uh, and then management uh, of these, generally, there's no great studies, uh, but uh, it makes sense uh, that benzos are going to be helpful for uh, both their neuroexcitatory uh, symptoms and seizures. Um, and then there's really just a lack of data to say for sure what else we should use as far as acute management. Um, yeah, so those were those were the highlights of this paper. Yeah, no, great, Sammy. There's, you know, this is sort of an often drug. It's used for multiple sclerosis, sometimes off-label for other 
indications and people may overdose on purposely inadvertently and have a variety of neuroexcitatory problems. As always, there's always that one case report of the worst that could be out there and, and some places will let you get away with saying the highest level ever recorded was such and such. Remember in the last uh, set of articles, the level was 140. Here we have a case that Emma will tell us about where it reached new heights. New heights. <clears throat> Not the record you want to hold. Um, I'm Emma, I'm one of the first year fellows. Um, so I will try not to belabor any of the other points um, about 4AP toxicity, but this was a case um, of a, yeah, I'll just jump into the case. Um, this is a case of a 34 year old male. Um, he had a history of MS. Uh, he was found unresponsive with three pill bottles at his side. Um, he was on dalecyclovir, temazepam, and this 4-AP uh, for his MS. Um, when he arrived to the hospital, his vital signs were significant for some hypertension, 155 over 82, a heart rate of 106. He's a little tachypnic with a respiratory rate of 24, normal temp. Um, they had him on two liters of nasal cannula. His glucose was normal. He was, uh, seemed like he had symptoms that were similar to other cases, so he was tremulous. Um, but he was, they described him as awake but not responding to any questioning and not following any commands, but localizing to pain um, with no vocal deficits, normal pupils. Um, and then they also described this diaphoresis and piloerection. Um, you know, for him, I do think his initial presentation of being sort of tremulous and awake, but kind of more sleepy, non-responsive, might have a lot to do with the temazepam that he took at the same time, um, like less agitated. Um, so he started having tonic-clonic seizures. They report him being bolus with lorazepam up to eight milligrams, then intubated, um, placed on a lorazepam and propofol infusion for sedation. They additionally loaded him with a gram of phenytoin and 300 milligrams of phenobarbital, then added a phenobarbital infusion. But unfortunately, this patient they say clinically, continue to have frequent and recurrent seizures. Um, the lab values, uh, he had an elevated white blood cell count, which is not surprising if he was continually seizing. The rest of his labs were fairly unremarkable. Um, he did have a lactate of 3.4, which is not bad for somebody who's seizing. Um, the CK wasn't elevated, the anti gap was 12. Um, and the initial gas they got was a 7.22 with a PCO2 of 65, but this was, it sounds like, directly after intubation. Um, so had a little hypercapnia. Um, CT of the head was normal, chest normal. So his EKG was sinus rhythm, 88 beats a minute, normal QRS, normal QT. So it's kind of interesting that he, even though he had uh, ended up having a 4-AP level of 530, um, which is the highest 
highest ever recorded, according to this. Um, he had no cardiotoxic effects, presumably at all, totally normal EKG. Um, he did also have a valicyclovir level of 7.5, which is higher than um, therapeutic. Therapeutic maxes are about four. Um, so he went to the ICU, and they don't really talk about much of the other uh, management. Other, I mean, I presume they kept him on this propofol and phenobarb and lorazepam drips, um, but he continued to seize, um, and he stopped seizing on hospital day three. Uh, they say he didn't get extubated until hospital day 12, but he was discharged with a completely normal mental status and neurologic exam. Um, and so that's pretty, pretty dramatic effects there. Um, so they go on to discuss, um, you know, that seizures are common with 4-AP, um, overdoses, uh, and before that, they say the highest ever published was a level of 233. And in the case with the level of 233, they were given lorazepam boluses and the seizures subsided. Um, and so they contrast that to their patient who was refractory to treatment with multiple anticonvulsant medications. Um, they definitely talk about the fact that valicyclovir itself um, could, in theory, also cause seizures in overdose. Um, however, that's less common in patients with you know normal kidneys. Um, so they talked about using phenytoin. Um, you know the theory, their their hypothesis is that because phenytoin is a sodium channel blocker, it might inhibit these like pro prolonged or potentiated action potentials that are that from the 4AP. Um, and, but they say, you know, our patient didn't, didn't respond to the phenytoin and they postulate that perhaps they should have uh, given higher phenytoin, phenytoin loads. Um, uh, and they go on to talk about um, toxin-induced seizures differing from epileptiform seizures as the toxin-induced seizures um, are due to a global lowering of this seizure theoretical th seizure threshold in otherwise normal neurons versus epileptiform seizures um, being caused by some focal lesion. And so um, they wondered if a higher dose of phenytoin maybe would have been uh, affected, but effective. Um, but it sounds like this patient, regardless, did have a good outcome despite a prolonged ICU stay. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a really bad case with a couple of weeks really in the hospital, yeah. seizing for three days, a super high level. Sort of the, uh, I think the dogma, not always completely followed, but was that yes, benzos and GABAergic agents, Robofol should be used for drug-induced seizures, with the exception being um, aminopyridine for AP. But it really is poorly supported. There's some really old 30, 40 year old case reports that maybe it worked. And I think the only reason it worked was that was really the only agent that they were using back then. And maybe the overdose wasn't as high as some of these could be. So something to worry about, a rare um, drug. It was looked at briefly 
as an antidote for calcium channel blockers. I'll say as sort of a factoid, it really doesn't probably work there because calcium channel blocker overdoses that we see with the typical agents are L-channel, and this probably, if anything, only works at the P and Q channel to augment calcium influx rather than the ones we care about in the heart. Um, so it's probably not useful for that. Dilantin's not useful for it. It's, again, supportive care. These animals who take it get agitated and seize. Humans who take it get agitated and seize. And I'll just say, uh, parenthetically, that there's another form that's out there called 3,4-di-aminopyridine, it's also known as amifampyridine, which is used for Eaton-Lambert or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, depending whichever you grew up in. I think it's now called Eaton-Lambert syndrome, which is also a neurotoxic disease that affects uh, the junctions. And it's got an early peak in 20 minutes. So if you're, someone takes this, they'll also be quite sick quite, quite quickly. Um, and so to finish up, I think we need to come back to Harvard because I'll tell a little story that during the 1950s, Harvard was, uh, Boston was overrun by pigeons. And this city was wondering what to do with it. And they decided to start a campaign of killing the pigeons with a variety of different poisonings that got the attention of a different Harvard professor who was good, a mathematician, who used to tinker around at the piano and play in nightclubs at the time. And his first um, song that came out and launched the career away from math and into music uh, was this. So we'll close with a little bit of Tom Lehrer. But there's one thing that makes spring complete for me and makes every Sunday a treat for me. seems in tune on a spring afternoon when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. Every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me as we poison the pigeons in the park. When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide, but they still go for peanuts when coated with cyanide. The sun's shining bright, everything seems all right when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. We've gained notoriety and caused much anxiety in the Audubon Society with our games. They call it impiety and lack of propriety and quite a variety of unpleasant names. But it's not against any religion to want to dispose of a pigeon. So if Sunday you're free, why don't you come with me and we'll poison the pigeons in the park. And maybe we'll do in a squirrel or two while we're poisoning pigeons in the park. We'll murder them all amid laughter and merriment, except for the few we take home to experiment. My pulse will be quickening with each drop of and we feed to a pigeon. It just takes a smidgen to poison a pigeon in the park. All right, thanks, sis. I think every budding toxicologist from that era on uh, knows about the infamous Tom Lehrer. 
So thank you, and we'll see you again, maybe with a different Tom Lerosoff. <laughs>